Hi, this is Maya Thomas. I am the DSC podcast producer of our first ever series. And I just wanted to give you a quick rundown of DSC as an organisation before we get started. So DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. Our focus is on helping providers to survive and thrive in the NDIS. And our purpose is better outcomes for people with disability. We take a different approach to our work. We focus on what works best for you, not us. We're real people and we respect that you are too. And we challenge what needs to change. These podcasts bring a new dimension to our work and our commitment to be fun, frank and future facing. So we hope you enjoy listening to them as much as we did putting them together. Hello and welcome to Candid Conversations, Disability Done Different. I'm Evie Norfell and I'm joined in the studio by my dad and least favourite colleague, Roland Norfell. Thank you, Evie. And our producer, Maya Thomas. Hi there. Today's podcast is with Rhonda Galbelli. And if you had a theme for today, if we had a theme for today, it would be the personal is political. But what comes through very strongly in this podcast is the personal, the bit mm -hmm. about Rhonda, the, the story of her disability, the story about her disability becoming political for her. But if I've got one reflection on knowing Rhonda personally for a number of years and knowing her career for three decades is that she's not recognised for this work that she's done. Yeah. It's been phenomenal, the work she's done. She's currently a, a board member of the National Disability Insurance Agency. She was an inaugural board member of the insurance agency. But she was also, I think, one of the key movers and shakers in getting the National Disability Insurance Scheme set up. But that was just the last few years. Her whole career is pretty phenomenal. Yep. So let's hear from Rhonda. Hello, this is a podcast. I could do the same joke again. Disability Services Consulting. <laughs> We're really excited! Do not keep that in. <laughs> Let's roll. Rhonda, I've, I, we've been friends for quite a while, but I've followed your career for quite a while longer, right back to the early 1980s. And when Evie and I were preparing for today's podcast, I was talking about all the things you've done from Executive Officer at the Maya Foundation back in the early 80s to inaugural CEO of VicHealth, inaugural CEO of Commission for the Future, inaugural CEO of my community and the mover and shaker, I think the mover and shaker behind the National Disability Care Alliance. You're one of the most outstanding public figures in Australian life. You're involved in anti-Vietnam um, demonstrations in the anti-Vietnam movement. You're involved in the women's movement long before the disability movement, yet you've had a disability since you were... 13 months. 13 months yeah. old. Yeah. Yeah. When did the personal become political for you in disability and why? Well, it became... It, I was in absolutely deep denial. So it not only wasn't relevant, I, I was absolutely committed to not being disabled under any circumstances, which and pretending I wasn't. Um, so I think that probably... We won't go into that, but it probably came from... Um, it could be a healthy denial, you know, because it sort of gets you going and out there. On the other hand, I think it's like the masking of a pain that ultimately has to be faced. And mine got faced, it would have been the late 70s, early 80s, when I went to work for Victorian Council of Social Service, where mm -hmm. you went to work. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, again in complete denial of being disabled and was working on a policy for housing for people with disability for VCOS. And somebody rang me up and I thought he was drunk. 
And he said, who do you think you are? Why are you working on this policy about us? And I said, what? Well, you know, I'm doing it because I'm the senior policy. I was also snooty. <laughs> and so he said, well, nothing about us without us. And I thought, this guy's nuts. Mm. Anyway, they a group came in to see me and they were disabled. And this guy had had a stroke, so his speech was slurred. And he definitely wasn't an alcoholic. But there, was, there were a couple of blind people there were lots of people with physical disabilities and there was one um, guy with an intellectual disability mm -hmm. and they came in and said we're here to design that policy with you and I thought this was you know I had accepted that you should design policies with um, people who are disadvantaged but I hadn't thought about disability in at all because I was so committed to not I felt really uncomfortable and I didn't, when they saw me, they were very surprised because they didn't think I was disabled. Did you think you were disabled? Because no. I remember when I was 14 years old and someone talked about my Lebanese father's accent and I got such a shock. My dad's got an accent. I didn't realise he had an accent. Did you know you had a disability? Look, I did know I did because, you know, my childhood was the pain of wanting to be in the netball team and trying out and, of course not even, you know, being considered or wanting to be a model and, you know, wearing one high heel and one caliper with a boot and then somehow knowing this wasn't going to work. You know, so I knew I was because I knew I was really different to uh -huh. other kids. But on the other hand, I, my investment in that not figuring was huge. Yeah, yeah. And, but it was, you know, it was certainly there as a sort of simmering um, misery beneath a surface of pretending, I think. And so it took me probably year, a year at least, probably longer to really join these people properly as one of them. I was very resistant and um, wanted to not, found it very uncomfortable. But in the end, I did. And it was the beginning of another story. So what does Rhonda Galbally, Professor Rhonda Galbally, have in common with a person with an intellectual disability? Um, I think we share knowing that things are going to be tougher, much tougher. You know, I've got a woman, the first, we're probably the first um, government advisory council in Australia that has a woman leader with an intellectual disability on the board. Is that the independent advisory council? That's the independent council? advisory council. Who advises to the NDIS? That's the right. Consumer, in, entirely consumable? No, not, no. not entirely. Okay. Anyway, but, um, and I've learned so much from, you know, I've got a lot in common with Judy in that we, you, you just know we've been there in various journeys. We've been there um, in the struggle to sort of get what you need to live a, a, a life that's a good enough life, in a way. Can I ask you, um, and you and I, don't, I don't think we've had this conversation, does it relate to other, the, 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 the otherness of having a disability, of being... Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. I was struggling to find words, but it is the otherness. A lot of um, different s sort of identity 
groups spend a lot of time uh, finding the real value in their different identity. Yes. So that they can, you know, be very proud, out and proud, if you like. Yeah, yeah. That's another part of my identity, but still, yeah, so much yeah. easier. It's, a, you know, being gay is much easier for me. Um, the disability part... You know, because when I was little, I used to lie in bed and dream that I'd wake up um, not disabled. Like, that was my dream, um, to not be disabled and to be like everybody else. And so, therefore, to grasp the, 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 the otherness as an identity for disability is really powerful. And I feel like people like Judy Hewitt and other people, especially with an intellectual disability, really helped me. Uh-huh. I want to counterpoint that to the other side of your personality. Uh, in your book, you talk about hate being, you hate being hated, yet you've managed to piss off a lot of people in your yeah. career. You don't hate it that much. No. <laughs> I do, though. And I sort of, I don't hate being hated enough to not push boundaries. Say with Vic Health, I mean, um, in the early days of setting up the Victorian Health Promotion Foundation, Vic Health, one of the things I came to was um, that everybody owned their own risk factor. So you could have sexually transmitted diseases, but you couldn't smoke, you know, because smoking was cancer and smoking was owned by the cancer. Mm -hmm. um, networks and they didn't really care whether you had yeah, um, yeah. An, a sexually transmitted disease, even HIV, because that was owned by another This is so group. interesting. And so everyone had their silos yeah. and, you know, they were sort of necessary to be obsessive enough to fight for legislation, to fight for reform. So they had, it had a real upside. And they were also necessary for fundraising, which also has an upside because yeah, it keeps yeah. those organisations going. But the downside was that the underlying causes of why um, you took risks at all were completely ignored. Yeah. And they're, they're the rich stuff of health promotion and they're what we actually should be working on. So let's, so, take, let's take. No, a, I'm coming yeah, to the end. Okay. So, yep. so what safe sex has to do with non not smoking or not getting blind with alcohol is hugely important, and I pissed everybody off by trying to force those together by saying we've got to take a risk approach, not a risk factor approach, and we've got to look at population groups who are much more likely, you know, to have all these risks. And so people got really pissed off. And I can remember when I'd done my time and somebody else came in, they then separated the risks out again. So they were again, you know... Yeah, and, back in this Yeah, because, because there'd still been that momentum towards owning one's own risk factor. And, and just talking about risk, I'm not giving you much of a chance to get in here, Evie, but talking about <laughs> risk, it seems to me that... You don't always worry about getting it right before going public. You're willing to take the risk of going out there on a strong opinion, a strong belief. Yeah, she's looking pretty sceptical on this question. <laughs> I do think you do that, but you wouldn't agree? Give me an example. This is, this is coming from the king of not thinking before he speaks, so it's a pretty big accusation. I, I, I tend to think I'm reasonably careful in that I do... I, I don't think I would 
go out publicly if I didn't have a reasonable basis um, in evidence for, you know, even that topic about risk factors. I mean, there is a huge amount of evidence that I looked at carefully when I came into health promotion, um, including challenging... Um, the other thing that really pissed people off was that I challenged the medical model of health promotion, which was if you just tell people they ought, they shouldn't smoke or drink too much, well, that's enough. So you do the information and you pay millions of dollars for ads and social marketing and they'll stop. Just don't do well, it. Well, let me tell you, they didn't yeah. because they're poor and disenfranchised, because it's their only comfort, because they're mentally ill. You're still fighting the therapeutic model, I am. Right? So tell us about the current fight on the therapeutic model. Well, I think that, um, that life is to be lived and medicine is marvellous. Like I did the review of um, medicines, poisons, chemicals, you know, for the national, the national review. And I really um, want to, you know, tip my hat to medicines. They're, and the, the new cancer medicines and immunotherapy is just astonishing. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's about sickness. Um, it's got to stay in the, in the health medical system. When it comes into disability, where you've got what you've got, and your goal in life is to get on with it and to get out into education and, you know, into buildings and into recreation and into leading a, a life, into even doing your dishes if you can, um, that's not medical. And so I think you've got to weigh up all the time. You know, are we dominating our lives with trying to get better when we've got what we've got? And you might make, you might make some gain, but at what expense, at what cost of leading an ordinary life? So that's how I see that as very, very important. And I have done since, you know, the 70s, really. Mm-hmm. And I think, it, I think it's actually really important in medicine, too. There's been a marvellous book just written, very evidence-based, um, for people over 70, talking about all this woman talking about all the tests she's no longer going to have yeah. because she's looked at the data and, you know, the, you get on with your life, you do things like exercise because it's fun and really valuable and makes you feel good, but you don't do it because it's healthy. So I want to pick up your point there, Rhonda, because how does that fit in with the insurance model of the NDIS when it is all about uh, reducing lifetime costs, about building independence, about these outcome scales, which are really all about seeing a measurable change and not just getting on with what you've got. How does that fit in? Well, that's exactly, I think that's, I think you've almost illustrated what I'm saying, that, you know, the insurance model is about, you know, being more independent and getting out there and having a go and going to you know, a community activity that could then give you confidence enough and networks too, because net, it's amazing how networks help people get jobs and then you get a job. Um, so you're actually, and but most important of all, it's learning in school. It's learning and getting your learning to the maximum because we all know that that really helps. And so I think that's exactly right. It's really very important that it's about those things. And yes, if there's something can be done when people have, 
you know, their disability initially to get you up to the maximum of, of functionality, then great. Um, as long as that's not a seductive promise to families really struggling mm -hmm. to come to grips with the reality of disability. It's that fine balance of doing what one can, but bearing in mind that ultimately there's a whole world out there and whatever your disability, it's very important to be out there in the maximum way. That's, the, that's really an insurance model. Yeah. So Rhonda, we expected a lot. We're excited about this podcast and it's been fabulous. So thank you very much. Thanks, Rhonda. Thank you. You've been listening to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations. This is DSC's podcast. If you want to learn a bit more about DSC, you can do so by checking out our websites, disabilityservicesconsulting.com.au, or subscribe to our newsletter. You can find links to do both in the show notes.